Amen, amen. To God be the glory, amen. Great things he has done, has he not? Yes, he really has. So praise the Lord for the team and in all the ways God used you. Praying that that will reverberate for so many years to come in the life of that family and that community. Amen. Amen. Well, my name is Pastor Ray Cosley. I'm one of the pastors here at Living Way. And if you're here with us today for the first time, we just want to welcome you. And we pray that you would indeed encounter the living Christ. Before we go into God's word as we customarily do, if I could have you guys stand with me as we go over our values as a church. I'll say the value and then we will read the statement together in one voice. A gospel-centered life. The gospel is the basis of our intimacy with God and our power for true transformation. A gospel-revealing community. By our love that transcends all natural bonds, all people will know that we are Christ's disciples. Unapologetic proclamation of Scripture. We stand on the solid rock of Scripture without compromise for all other ground is sinking sand. Church as family. We as followers of Jesus pursue his vision of family through our deep and mutual commitment into dependence and affection. And lastly, a missional community. We join God's mission to make disciples by demonstrating tangibly the power of the gospel in our city and in the world. Amen. You may be seated. And if you will, please bow with me before the Lord in prayer. Yes, God, you have done great things. And you will continue to do great things. Because it is by definition who you are. Because you are a great God. And so God, I just pray, Lord God, today. In the listening ear of every single individual, Lord God, under the sound of my voice. God, will you do great things. Things, Lord God, that only can point us to you. And so, God, I just pray against every and evil distracting force that may want to try to rob your glory from the hearing ears of every person. And I command every evil spirit right now in the name of Jesus to leave. You have no place here. And God, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would send your ministering angels to protect and minister, God. And we pray, God, Holy Spirit, that you would sanctify and save and that you would allow for us to feel and understand and experience the gravity of what you have to say for us today. Not by might, nor by power, nor by eloquence of speech, but by the Spirit of the living God, we pray these things. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Well, many of you are familiar with the song that Chris Tomlin sings, Do You Feel the World is Broken? We do. The economic climate, the moral decline that we see in the things that we watch in our world and witness. Do you feel the shadows deepen? Well, we do. The wars and the rumors of war. Just this week, Israel was attacked by terrorists, Hamas. And the reports of the fact that they have now declared officially war. 
the church in the West is dying? Is all creation growing? Well, the earth continues to quake, crying out for redemption. World evangelization is moving at a feverish pace. And as we've seen again this week, the Middle East is in turmoil. And God's people, Israel, and God's people, the church, are under siege. So in light of all of those things, we as a leadership thought that it would be fitting for us to begin what I believe is the first series in the history of our church on eschatology. Come on now. Eschatology, the root word for eschatology is eschaton. In the Greek, that means in times. Ology means the study of. It is the study of how God will bring final judgment and redemption to this world. Because this topic can be both contentious and confusing, I want to give a 10-minute or so theological background on our position as a church before we begin. So this may feel a little bit academic. You guys ready for a little bit of mini-seminary class? You guys good? You, you, you do it? Okay. So I'm going to give some introductory stuff, and then we'll go into the message. There are two main camps of disagreement around the topic of eschatology. The first camp is called covenant theology, and the second camp is called dispensational theology. Everybody say covenant. Dispensational. And the disagreement between these two theological concepts are really around two pairs of biblical categories. The first pair is the tribulation and the millennium. The second pair is Israel and the church. Now, when we talk about the tribulation, the tribulation is basically a period of pain and turmoil leading up to God's millennial or thousand-year rule. And in Revelation chapter 20, it explains the millennium as a thousand-year period when God is going to establish his final rule and reign on the earth. Now, the questions are, between these two camps, are we in tribulation now, or will they be a literal seven-year tribulation that is yet to come? Secondarily, is the millennium which follows the tribulation, is the millennium something that we are experiencing now, or is there a literal thousand-year reign of Christ that is still yet to come? Now, when it comes to Israel and the church, the questions are, between these two camps, are the promises of Israel that we see in the Old Testament fulfilled in the church, or are there still Old Testament prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled in Israel that will come to fulfillment in the end? So here's what the covenant theologians would have to say to that. Now, your covenant theologians are of a Reformed background. Some of you may have grown up in Presbyterian churches. Anybody been a part of or in Presbyterian churches? Those are your covenant theologians. Those are your Tim Kellers. Anybody heard of Tim Keller? Or D.A. Carson. Everybody say D.A. Carson? Okay. And basically, covenant theologians see a redemptive arc in all of Scripture based on covenants. 
So God is removing his redemptive agenda through covenants. First covenant was the Adamic covenant, Adam, right? The second covenant was the Noahic covenant, Noah. The third covenant was the Abrahamic covenant. And then we had the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then finally the new covenant, which we are in now in Christ Jesus. Now regarding Israel and the church, covenant theologians believed believe that Israel was absorbed into the church at the inauguration of the final covenant, namely the new covenant. So covenant theologians will say this, and Ligon Duncan is also a, a covenant theologian. He says covenant theology isn't replacement theology, namely that the church replaced Israel, but it is fulfillment theology. There's a promise that was given to the Old Testament, Israel, and it's fulfilled in the church. The promise of God to Israel are fulfilled in both Jews and Gentiles being part of the one people of God in the purpose of God's redemption, end quote. So as a result, since Israel in the Old Testament has been grafted into the church, there's really no specific agenda or promises that God has for Israel. They have already been fulfilled. Now, covenant theologians, when it comes to tribulation and millennium, they do not believe that there is a specific tribulation, that actually we are presently in a time ever since Christ died and rose of tribulation. And there are some covenant theologians that believe that the great tribulation that the scriptures speak of happened in A.D. 70. Well, what happened in A.D. 70? That was when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. And so they believe that was the great tribulation, at least some do. And that was when there was great persecution and the dispersion of the Jews. So, since we are in the millennium, now is what they say. That's why you hear the term amillennial. Kind of ah, there is no definition to it. They are amillennial, meaning the new covenant ushered in the millennium now. So the kingdom is now spiritually. So there's no literal thousand-year reign of Christ that is to come, and there's no literal seven-year tribulation yet to come. So for the covenant theologian, all we are waiting for is for Christ to return and make the spiritual kingdom that now is a literal kingdom and a physical kingdom with the final judgment, and then we go off into eternity. Okay? So that's covenant theology. Did you guys follow that? Am I going slow enough? Or does that make sense? Okay. Now let's go to dispensational theology. Instead of seeing the ark of redemption from the Old Testament to the New Testament in covenants, which they don't disagree with covenants. We all believe in covenants. The scriptures teach covenants, right? We're on board with the covenants. Now these things are biblical or unbiblical. We're not against them. But they see the ark of redemption based on dispensations. That's why it's called dispensational. A dispensation is a period or a time um, indication. So, for example, people who are dispensational are a lot of non-denominational churches, Bible churches, Baptist churches, Calvary chapels, right? Uh, John MacArthur, Biola, Biola, woo-woo, Biola. Okay, that's... So, dispensational theology sees the arc of redemption through the Bible in stages. 
They first see it as innocence, right? We were totally innocent. Adam and Eve were in perfection. Then the next dispensation or time period was conscience, right? They ate the tree, and then now they have a conscience. They realize that they are full of sin. And then God introduces human government, where now man is trying to govern themselves. And then you have, after human government, the promise. Everybody say promise. So that was the promise that God gave to Abraham. And then after the promise, now was the dispensation of the law, right? The law was introduced through Moses. And then from that dispensation, now the final dispensation is grace, where Jesus Christ came, died, and now we live under grace. And the final dispensation will be the kingdom, okay? So now regarding tribulation and the millennium, this is how dispensationalists see tribulation in the millennium. We should look at this chart. So, basically, a dispensationalist sees the tribulation and the millennium. If you see that box, it says tribulation, right? That tribulation in parentheses says seven years. A dispensational theologian, and before that, you see the church age. So that's where we are now, right? We're in the church age. We believe that there is going to be a literal seven-year tribulation. And that's where you see underneath that the reign of the Antichrist, the 70th week of Daniel. Now, with respect to the tribulation, if you see above that tribulation box, you see Christ descends. And you see those arrows. Well, the arrow that's going this way from the church age up is the rapture. So that's pre-tribulation. Then there's a seven-year period of literal tribulation. Halfway through it, which we'll talk about this later, the second half of the tribulation, three and a half years, is called the Great Tribulation. And then after the Great Tribulation, then you have the second coming of Christ, then the millennium. And he brings the church back down, and then there's a literal millennial rule of Jesus Christ, and he fulfills in that time the Old Testament prophecy that he declared that he would sit on the throne of David which is the Old Testament literal interpretation. And so, but before the millennium, as you can see right there, is the battle of Armageddon. After the millennium, Satan is loosed. Then you have judgment, and then you have the eternal state. Okay? I know it looks a little confusing. Does that kind of make sense? Okay, so we're going to show you guys that chart more um, as we go through. I just wanted to give you guys kind of a sample. So, regarding the tribulation, there's a Literal seven-year tribulation. Now, you have different dispensationalists. You have pre-trib, post-trib, and mid-trib. It gets really confusing. All right? So, you have pre-trib that believes we're not going to go through the tribulation. You have mid-trib that believes that the church is going to halfway through the tribulation go through it and then get taken up. And then you have post-trib that says the church is going to go all the way through all of it and, and all of that. Those, you guys, but don't worry about all that. This is confusing. Okay. Now, regarding the millennium. All dispensationalists are premillennialist, as opposed to an amillennialist, meaning pre, meaning before, right? Premillennial. So that means that we believe that there has yet to come a literal thousand-year reign that God promised in Revelation chapter 20, where at the second coming of Christ, we will all engage in Armageddon, we fight Satan and the Antichrist, literal thousand-year reign. Jesus will sit on the throne of Israel, and then after all of that, then we will have the judgment and the eternal state. So now regarding Israel and the church, what does the dispensationalist see as far as Israel and the church? 
Well, premillennial dispensationalists believe that during the dispensation of promise, everybody say promise. Remember that area of promise where God made promises to whom? Abraham. He said he would bless Gentiles, but he also made promises to whom? Israel as well. So a premillennial dispensationist believes that there are still specific Old Testament prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled that will be fulfilled during the time of the millennium. So there will be where God begins to deal with Israel after the church age, where there will be tribulation, where he deals with Israel. There will be a remnant that comes from that, and from that remnant, they will go and we will fight Armageddon and then rule and reign with Jesus Christ. So you will have both the church and Israel together in the millennium. Are you guys following me? So, we, most people in this camp are what I call pre-tribulation, meaning that we are going to avoid the tribulation, and that's where you get the concept of the rapture, the rapture. So, what is our position as a church? Where do we all stand with all of this? Well, praise the Lord, me and Pastor James were quite confused this week. (laughs) You guys got some great leaders, man. You got some great shepherds, boy. But God just blessed us, and he brought us back to our roots. And our professor, when we were in seminary, wrote a book called Progressive Dispensationalism, not to be confused with the progressive church. But he wrote a book on progressive dispensationalism. And what theologians kind of joke is they say, basically progressive dispensationalists have your cake and eat it too. Because it has covenant theology and dispensation theology all mixed up together. So we got some covenant and we got some dispensational, which is traditional or historic dispensationalism. So what is progressive dispensationalism? It is a combination of covenant and dispensational. Regarding Israel and the church, we believe that when Jesus Christ came in the new covenant, there is a spiritual union with Israel that we have. Romans chapter 11 says that the church and Israel were grafted in, right? So there's a spiritual union, just like covenant theologians say. But at the same time, what we do see is that there are distinct Old Testament promises reserved for Israel alone. So we see it as a both end. Secondarily, regarding the millennium, we see in Scripture that God is ruling right now. Amen? He is ruling in his kingdom from heaven. There is a right now of God's rule and reign. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to what? Me. Okay? We saw in Ephesians, Jesus Christ is seated in the what? heavens. So covenant theologians, yeah, we got you on that. He, he is ruling. But we also see that in the church age, there will be a specific literal thousand-year millennial rule because there has to be a fulfillment of the Davidic promise that the Messiah will sit on the throne of David. So we believe in a specific literal millennium. Regarding the tribulation, we as a church embrace pre-tribulation eschatology, where we will experience a rapture before the tribulation, which will usher in at that time. Once the rapture happens, then we have the tribulation. After the tribulation, then we will come back with Jesus and Israel and rule with him in the millennium. So that's where we are. We are progressive dispensationalists. Any progressive dispensationalists in the house now? Uh, okay. All right. So where do we all agree? 
We're all Christians agree. Here's what we all agree on. It doesn't, you don't, and, and we, we choose not to divide over this, amen? Okay? This is tertiary, not primary. Okay? Here's where we all agree. Jesus is coming back physically on earth one day. Here's where we all agree. There will be a bodily resurrection of all people who have ever lived. Some into eternal judgment and some in eternal bliss with Jesus Christ. This is what we all believe. Satan will be defeated and he will be constrained forever. Both him, his minions, and all those who have yet to come and did not come to saving faith in Jesus. We believe, all of us, that there will be a final judgment in which believers join Christ for eternity while non-believers are separated from God's presence. Those are the things that we all believe in the pale of Christianity. Amen? So this is where we don't divide over. Now, after all of that, throughout this whole entire um, series, we're going to go ahead and go through all of that that I just, you guys just saw on the chart. Okay? You guys ready? It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. But before we do that, I have two introductory things I want to focus on. And, and in that chart, the first thing going from left to right was the church age. You guys saw that box? The church age. Before we even get into the rapture. Hey, thank you. All right. There you go. The church age. I'm going to focus in the church age for this message and the next one. I'm going to stay in the church age, and then Pastor James is going to hit rapture after that. So here's my question for you today. What is the most important question you need to answer considering the end times? What is the most important question that you need to answer considering the end times? Now, I thought it would be fitting for us to begin this series at the end. We're going to go to the very last chapter in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start us at the very end of the story. You've seen those movies where they give you the very, you know, crux and the climax at the beginning of the movie, and then you wonder, how did you get there? I'm going to give you the crux. I'm going to give you the climax right now. We're going to climax right now, and then we're going to go slowly on how we get there. All right? So Revelation chapter 22, starting at verse 6, all the way down to verse 21, is called the epilogue. It's almost a summary of what has been declared in the entire book of Revelation. And so I'm going to answer three questions. What is the most important thing that Jesus wants you to know regarding the end of all things? What is the most important thing that Jesus wants you to know about the end times? Secondarily, how confident can you be that he is going to do what he says? And then lastly, what is the most important question that you need to ask yourself today regarding the end times? So first, what is the most important thing that Jesus wants you to know regarding the end of all things? Verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Now what's interesting is, this is the end. Well, you know what, how the very beginning of Revelation starts? In verse 7. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. So it brackets that one concept. He starts Revelation saying in verse 7 of chapter 1, I'm coming soon, behold. And he ends Revelation chapter 22, behold, I am coming soon. Now look at verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, recompense with me to repay each one what he has done. Then look at verse 20. He, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. 
So you notice in verse 12, it's almost verbatim what verse 7 was in the quotation. Behold, I am coming soon. But then he switches it up in verse 20, and instead of saying behold, he says what? Surely. This is the concluding promise of Jesus' series of the imminent return of him. Verse 7, verse 12, and the last words, the very last words of Jesus in the entire Bible are, I am coming soon. What is the most important thing that Jesus wants you to know regarding the end of all things? The beginning of the book, the end of the book. Repeated three times, verse 7, verse 12, verse 20. The last thing that comes from his mouth before he closes the book. What is the one thing that he wants us to know? He's coming. He wants you to be left with the reality and the gravity. If you miss everything else, don't miss verse 20. Don't miss the last words that came out of my mouth. And no matter your eschatological leaning, here's the reality of the history of the world. The history of the world is creation, fall, rescue, and what's left. Do you realize, church, that we are in the last epoch of history? This is it. But Jesus knows that simply stating that he's coming is not enough. He knows that it's not enough for you to respond with the kind of weight and gravity that he wants you to respond. So what does he do? How does he increase, my second question, our confidence in this statement that he's coming? He draws our attention to the very person that is saying it. You see, if I tell you that we're on the verge of economic collapse, how would that move you? Um, you know what I'm saying? You might be like, oh, okay, I mean, you're a pastor, you know what I'm saying? Economics, finances, I don't know if I'm going to give too much weight to that. But if Warren Buffett told you that, how much weight would you give to him? A whole lot more. Because he's financially savvy and I'm not. If, if I tell you that the Dodgers are going to win the World Series, but if Mookie Betts comes up and tells you we win in the World Series, are you going to feel the gravity of that statement a lot more? Let me get an amen, Pastor James. <laughs> if I tell you Tupac is still alive. But if Snoop gets on Instagram and says, I'm holding a press conference in five hours and I got some news about Tupac, are you going to give more gravity if he says it as opposed to if I do? You see, here's the reality. The gravity or veracity of a statement is directly tied to the credibility and the ability of the person to carry it out. And so Jesus here says, I don't want you to just focus on what I'm saying I want you to focus on who's saying it. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You see, the one saying that I'm coming is of the root, verse 16, of David. Now, this takes us back to Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. In, in, in Revelation 5 through through 5, it says this, And no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, in Revelation chapter 5, the scrolls is, is actually in his hand. Those are history. And it's the history of the end. And it's all the scrolls of the judgments that are to come. Well, those scrolls, they go up in heaven and everybody looks and all the elders look and they say, no one could open the scrolls. No one can unwind God's agenda for the very beginning of the very end of what is to come. But then in verse 5 it says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You see, John weeps because, see, we can't have redemption Unless the seals are open. The seals that represent judgment. So why do we have John here in the text in Revelation chapter 5 weeping? Because he identifies the reality of the fact that we need a root that comes from David. We need somebody that comes in the, in the messianic line of David. Because only that person can open the scrolls. And who's the one who steps forward? You see, the scene that I just read you in Revelation chapter 5 is the 11th hour, if you will. The dam of God's wrath in Revelation chapter 5 is about to be poured out on the entire world. Enough is enough, if you will. And if no one can open the scrolls, then that means that God's going to just kill and destroy everything and everybody. You see, if there's no one to open the scroll, then you will have to pay for every one of your failures. You see, if no one can break the seal, then then you will see no victory over the pains of your childhood that that still haunts you in your midlife. You see, if no one is worthy to take the scrolls, then the flesh wins, and the heart and its deceitfulness remains. You see, if if no one can open up the scrolls, then then we can't get to the fact that, that we can ultimately find ourselves free from the shackles of sin, free from our half-hearted devotion to Jesus that that has no competitors. You see, if no one can open the scrolls, then the long-standing depression that you find yourself in right now, the, the emotional disruptions that stick you in these places that just can't seem to get out and you find yourself just constantly there. You see, if nobody can open up the scrolls, that means that there's no redemption for my misdirected desires and all of my unrealized dreams. That midlife crisis remains to be an eternal one. If you can't open up the scrolls, then you have no issues with respect to fixing the sexual depravity in our world. If no one can break the seal, then the coronaviruses in our world, they win. The systemic racism outside and within the church will not be dealt with. The persecution, the death of my Christian brothers and sisters, the, the, the persecution of Israel around the world, those people who have lost mother, father for the sake of Christ, they will be left in tears if no one can open up the scrolls. If there's no one who is found worthy during the 11th hour, then all the pain that you are experiencing and have experienced will be meaningless. It's just pain. If no one can open up God's desired destiny for the entire world, then there will be no triumph for the gospel, no marriage supper of the Lamb, no new heaven, no new earth, no eternal life because of the new birth. If no one can open the scroll, then all there will be is weeping. This is why John weeps. But then there's verse 7. Woo, there's chapter 5, verse 7. And he went 
and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Jesus goes to the Father and he says, I can open the seals. Why? Because I'm the root of David. I am the descendant. And so what Jesus is saying in Revelation chapter 22 is I'm the one that's going to bring this about. My name is of the root of David. I am the one that's going to open the scrolls. That one is coming. But that's not all I am. Not only in verse 16 am I the root of David, verse 16, I am the bright morning star. So not only is he the one that can open up the scrolls, the one also that is saying to you, today I am coming, is giving a messianic allusion to an Old Testament messianic prophecy. Numbers 24, verse 17, a star will come out of Jacob. And he's not just any star, he's a bright one, which means he outshines all the others. And you know what this symbolized for Israel? That prophecy symbolized one word. So not only is he saying the one who's telling you I'm coming is the one who has history in his hands. I got the scrolls. But also at the same time, I am the brightest hope that has ever existed in all eternity. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living, what everyone? Hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, everybody say imperishable, undefiled, everybody say undefiled, unfading, everybody say unfading, and kept in heaven for you. In other words, I am the bright morning star. I am the one that holds hope in his hands. That means everything that you place your hope in outside of Jesus is perishing because his is imperishable. We all know that, right? Beauty is fading. Everybody's getting uglier every day. (laughs) Deal with it. Finances, do not trust, the scriptures say, in uncertain riches. Everybody say uncertain. I need to understand that, do you? Uncertain. Put your hope in your marriage, even if it's a beautiful, wonderful one, you will lose your spouse one day. Your children, you'll put your hope in your children. You can put your hope in them all you want. But at one day, either you will leave them or they will leave you. Every hope in this world outside of Jesus that you're trying to find security, identity, status, purpose in is perishing. It's fading. You can't keep your hope in it. It ain't that bright. The luster always lessens. I remember watching J.J. Reddick as he was having an interview um, he was talking to Stephen A. Smith. J.J. Redick is a basketball player, retired. He used to play for the Clippers, the, the Flippers. <laughs> my, son, my son-in-law is a Clippers fan. God, pray for him. <laughs> pray for that man. Oh, yes. But J.J. Redick, he talked about the fact that he was, we were talking about, they were talking about some other player. Oh, they were talking about Kawhi Leonard. Yeah, praise the Lord. They were, t- they were saying he needs to retire. Amen. He does need to retire. But Stephen A. said it very cavalierly. And J.J. Reddick, who played in the league for years, he said, you say that so cavalierly, but you don't realize what you're saying. He said, do you understand that since we were like this big, 
We have been at the center. People have praised us and lauded us for our performance. We have been sought over by magazines, by schools. We have been offered tens of millions of dollars. We have been at center stage in in stadiums with thousands and thousands and thousands of people. He said, said, I'll never forget one day when I got injured and I felt like finally I was going to have to let it go. He said, I remember calling my mom and my mom just saying, hey, son, let it go. And he said, mom, I don't think you understand how hard that is because my very identity is wrapped up in this and you're telling me to lose myself. It's perishable. It's fading. But the one who has proven through his resurrection, 1 Peter chapter 3, he proved through his resurrection that he has a hope that is living. He gives a hope that is imperishable. He gives a hope that is undefiled. He gives a hope that never fades. And the Bible says it's kept for us in heaven. This takes us back now to the next phrase. So not only is he the one who holds the scrolls, the root of David, the one saying that I'm coming is also the one who we see is the one who is the bright morning star. But not only that, verse 6 of chapter 22, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy. Everybody say trustworthy and true. And the, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So now Jesus shows you another designation of who is telling you is coming. Not only is the individual telling you is coming is the one who holds the very scrolls of history in his hand because he's the root of David. Not only is the one who's telling you he's coming the one who's the bright morning star. This one is also Revelation chapter 19:11, trustworthy and true. Now you see he says I'm trustworthy and true, but if you jump up to Revelation chapter 19, it says then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it The one sitting on it, it's not that he is faithful and true. He is called. Everybody say called. And you see that's in capital letters. He's called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. In other words, the one whose very name is faithful and true is telling you in verse 7, verse 12, verse 20, I'm coming. In other words, if I say it, and it's happening. And this one who is faithful and true, if you still don't believe me and you doubt it, the second part of verse 6, I, the one who is named faithful and true, are the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. What does that mean? That means that all of the prophecies in the Old Testament up through now came through the spirit of Jesus. Ooh. I don't think y'all heard me. Jesus is saying, the reason why my name is faithful and true is because I'm Lord of the prophets. Which means when I prophesied and told Adam and Eve, if you eat that tree, you will die, what did they do? They surely died. When I prophesied through Moses, Pharaoh, let my people go, what did they do? 
it was faithful and true. They let them go. When I prophesied to my people a promised land through the prophets, what did they get? A promised land. Because my name is faithful and true, I prophesied my first coming, born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, born in Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5, lived in Egypt during my childhood, Hosea chapter 11, born of the root of Jesse, Jeremiah chapter 23. I was a Galilean, Isaiah chapter 9, and in Daniel 9:25, it predicted precisely the coming of the Messiah. Why? Because he is the Lord of the spirit of the prophets who is faithful and true. He promised the Messiah's death, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Psalm 41. Bones would not be broken, Numbers chapter 9. Clothes divided and casting lots, Psalm 22. Crucified outside and, and under a rich man's tomb, Isaiah 53. Because my name is faithful and true. I told you that I would destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. And in three days what happened? I rose from the grave because my name is faithful and true. And I am the Lord of the prophets. You see, the chances of all those predictions that I just gave you are infinitesimal. Do you realize that? Do you realize every single one of those prophecies? And I just scratched the surface, y'all. And what Jesus is saying is, because I am Lord of the prophets, I have proven that when I say something, it's going down. When I say it, it's happening. I've proven it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And that same God who was faithful and true, who has constantly throughout every single prophet, throughout every single dispensation of Scripture, has demonstrated I'm coming, is telling you right now, I'm coming soon. You see, Jesus didn't just say, I'm coming soon. You got to know who's saying it. And if you're still not feeling the weight, of what I've said. I'm up here sweating, y'all. If you still, I've already told you I'm the root of David. I already told you I'm the bright morning star. I already told you right here in the text that my name is faithful and true. I already told you I'm the Lord of the spirit of the prophets, but I'm still not done. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So he tells you I'm coming. Now he gives the ground. Here's the ground for why my statement holds gravity. Verse 13, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Ooh, man. Dude, Jesus is a boss. That's a bookend statement. In chapter 1, verse 7, it says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. And then in verse 8, he gives the ground. I'm coming. I'm coming. So he begins the book of Revelation saying, I'm the Alpha and Omega and I'm coming. And he ends the book of Revelation. I'm the Alpha and Omega and I'm coming. The difference is, in chapter 1, verse 8, God says, I'm the Alpha and Omega. Then in chapter 1, verse 17, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. Then in chapter 2, verse 8, Jesus again says, I'm the first and the last. Then in chapter 1, 21, verse 6, it, God says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, and then adds beginning and end. But in verse 13, Jesus combines all three. The first time in all of Revelation where all three designations 
Alpha and Omega, first, last, and beginning and end, are all drawn together in one. Is Jesus trying to tell you something? I'm not just the Alpha and Omega. I'm not just the first and the last. I'm not just the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha, Omega, first, last, beginning, end, period. In other words, I, Jesus, the one who is the very creator, that's what Alpha and Omega means. I am the creator of time itself. Mind blown. What these three designations combined mean that Jesus is the very essence of existence. Without him, there is nothing. Which means that the very essence of time itself is in the palm of Jesus' hands. Which means all of history belongs to him. Which means all of history is driving toward and will culminate with him. Which means building your own empire or trying to have a legacy. Everybody talking about have a legacy? That's a waste of time. Because you know what's all going to add up to be? One person. Jesus. He's going to use your legacy to highlight himself. Since he's the essence, that's what it means to be Alpha and Omega, the very essence of history. That means that your life and every life is not a series of haphazard events. You see, because he is Alpha and Omega, he's got your whole world in his hands. And if today, if today you have bowed your knee to Jesus and you've embraced him as your Lord, Savior, and treasure, then every event in your life is a symphony of his master plan to bring a wonderful plan of redemption that will get you the good and him the glory. But if you have not made Jesus your Lord, Savior, and treasure today, then you will end in history in eternal destruction. That's what the scriptures teach us. So what am I saying? Come to Jesus today if you haven't. You see, how confident, how confident can we be that what Jesus says, I am coming soon, how confident can we be? If you understand how confident you can be, this is how confident. I'm the root of David. I have the power of the scrolls in my hand. I'm the bright morning star. I am the one who holds imperishable hope in my hand. I am faithful and true. I'm the one who says something and do it because I'm the Lord of the prophets. And I'm the Alpha, Omega, beginning, and the one who holds time and history in his hands. It's this being, it's this being that's telling you, verse 7, I'm coming. It's that kind of being. You got to feel the weight of that. That being says out of his mouth in verse 12, behold, I am coming. That being that is Alpha, Omega, beginning, in faithful, true, the last words that come out of that being's mouth in verse 20 is surely. Ooh. You see, he didn't just say it. He wants you to pay attention to who's saying it. I could tell you Jesus is coming, but when the Alpha Omega stands here and tells you I'm coming, that's a whole different ballgame. You see, he's been saying it ever since he walked on this earth. Oh, he told you he's coming in Matthew chapter 16. 
He told you he's coming in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42 and 44. He told you I'm coming in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. He told you in John chapter 14, he told the disciples, I'm going to prepare a place. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Because in my father's house, there are many rooms. I think I've told you guys a story before, that, that, that word in John chapter 14, in my house are many rooms. In the King James, we used to read King James back in the day when I was little. I don't know if anybody, anybody still, any King Jamers? Used to be, used to be King Jamers? All right, it's okay to be a King James. All right. Well, because it's old English, because it's old English, right, the word for rooms is mansion in old English. So, you know, when I was a little kid in Sunday school, they was like, if you come to Jesus, you know what I'm saying, you're going to get you a mansion. Again, I was a little kid from the hood, man. I was from the hood, dog. You telling me I'm getting a mansion? Where do I sign up? Let me know. But really, Old English word for mansion is just modest dwelling. That's what it means. <laughs> Why? Because the emphasis isn't on the room, it's on the person that's in the room. The room can be this big. If Jesus is in it, I'm all good. But see, he told you in John chapter 14. But he also told you through the spirit of the prophets in Daniel chapter 7. He also told you through the spirit of the prophets that I'm coming in, in Zechariah chapter 14. He told you through the spirit of the prophets in Isaiah chapter 9 that I'm coming. He told you through the spirits of the prophets in Isaiah chapter 61, I'm coming. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Church, Jesus is coming. So I'll leave you with this question. What is the most important question you need to answer considering the end times? What's the most important question you need to answer? It's not whether you're a covenant or dispensational, whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, or mid-trib, pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, oatmeal. <laughs> My wife said oatmeal. Uh, she... You know what the most important question is? It's the one that Jesus, and we'll talk about this, spends a long time through a series of parables asking. You know what the most important question is about the end times? Are you ready? Are you ready? That answer young people, my young adults, high schoolers, and those of you that are 50s, 60s, 70s, that is the most important question you need to answer. Are you ready? And there's one word that I left out in verses 7, 12, and 20 of Revelation chapter 22. Can somebody tell me what's the word that Jesus uses in every single one after he says, I am coming? Everybody say soon. Everybody say soon. And again, I'm not a prophet. I know people try to determine and predict when Jesus is coming. 
but as I already told you, we know soon is the fact that right now we are in the last epoch of history. That's soon. But what I'm going to be sharing and Pastor James over our time together is there are signs that Jesus told us to look for. And we are convinced that it's sooner than we think. There are so many theologians that believe based on the signs and the fulfillments that have already occurred or are about to that we may find ourselves in a rapture before we even die, most of us here. It's soon. So I ask you again, are you ready? Now, the rest of verses 6 through 21 in Revelation chapter 22 really break down what it means to be ready. And in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus breaks down what it means to be ready. And so we're going to talk about that through our time. But at the end of the day, I think most of us know, is Jesus your Lord, Savior, and treasure today? Is he your Lord? Is he of your Savior? Is your treasure? And, I'm, and again, I'm telling I'm encouraging you guys, let's not deceive ourselves. I'm not saying, you know, because you know all the lingo and you go to church. When we say Lord, Savior, and treasure, we do that intentionally. To be Lord means to be, I have bowed my knee to Jesus. Whatever he says, thinks, and feels about everything, I submit myself to it. If you haven't, then you're not ready. Savior. If you're looking for money to save you, sex to save you, relationships to save you, your marriage to save you, friends to save you, your accolades to save you, whatever we look to for salvation, and Jesus isn't the only Savior for you, then you're not ready. And then treasure. Jesus described the kingdom as treasure. He said it in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a what? Field. Who a man, when he saw that treasure, he sold everything he had. He sold, he sold everything he had just because he got one. Is that the affections that you have for Jesus, that he's treasure? If not, then you're not ready. And so we want to invite you even today, posture your heart and ask God, open my eyes that I might be ready. Bow with me. God, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, God, that you are coming. That, God, when you say something, Jesus, it's good as done. Because you are faithful and true. And so, God, we rest in that. So I pray, God, that even if my brothers and sisters in the South, if they find themselves restless in some way, God, help them to know that everything for them is yes and amen in Jesus. Every promise that you've declared belongs to them in Jesus. And the greatest promise is that you're not going to leave us here. You're not going to leave us here. You're going to come back again and take us home with you, to be with you, totally unencumbered 
But all of the things that shackle us down, we'll be free entirely to experience the bliss of what it is to be intimately known and loved by you. Thank you for that. But God, it's not a thank you for everyone. And I pray those, God, who have yet to come to know that, because for them, the second coming is going to be the worst day of their lives. God, I pray, will you move them today to experience the wonder and the grace of what they have if they find it in, in you. That they too can rejoice that as good as dead, it's, it's good as done, that you're coming again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we move into this time of response, I want to encourage